Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.12, Beatrice, the flower of the flock. Welcome back to the show, and to the third part of this second season of the show that we're calling The Mothers of World War I. In the first part, we saw Queen Victoria's eldest child, Vicky, marry the heir to the Prussian throne, and play her part in the emergence of the German Empire from the Prussian caterpillar. She fought for liberal values and an anglicisation of the realm, but instead saw Germany set on the path of militarism and war, spearheaded by her enemy Bismarck and son Wilhelm. In the second part, we again went to Germany, this time with Alice, who, after taking extraordinary care of her mother after the death of her beloved father, left for Hesse. There, she embarked on an extraordinary life campaigning for better medical care and unfashionable causes, while also giving birth to a great number of children, two of whom would go on to play their part in Russia's war effort during World War I. Well, in part three, we will not be travelling to Germany, but instead stay at home in the UK. It's time for the story of Princess Beatrice. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my Patreon subscribers for their continued support of this show. If you'd like to support the podcast as well, and I'd be very grateful if you did, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also find the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. To any new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Beatrice should probably have never been born. Her mother had been advised by her doctors that giving birth to a ninth child was a very dangerous thing to do. 
Moreover, the nation was not keen to have to support yet another royal prince or princess, and there were sections of the press that was loudly critical of the Queen for being such a profligate mother. The country was at war with Russia, and the Queen and Prince Consort were pretty much chained to their desks. And indeed, the Queen herself had spoken out against having more children, saying that it wore her out and was making her feel miserable. Yet, despite all of this, she did become pregnant for the ninth and final time, and gave birth to a baby girl on the 14th of April, 1857, some 17 years after the birth of her first child, Vicky. One imagines that Victoria and Albert would have had to have thought long and hard about the naming of their new child, as they'd already used up all of their good names. And indeed, it wasn't until weeks later that they finally announced what the new princess was to be called. At a christening service held at St George's Chapel, Windsor, she was christened Beatrice Mary Victoria Theodore. Now, three of these names are not all that surprising. Victoria was for, well, take your pick, really, pretty much the whole family. Mary was for the Queen's aunt, the Duchess of Gloucester, who had died a few days before the service, and Theodore was the name of the Queen's half-sister. But Beatrice? That was a bit of a curveball, as it wasn't all that common a name at the time. Before her, the most famous Beatrice was probably the one in Dante's Inferno, or one of the many Catholic saints of that name. So far as I can tell, the last British princess called Beatrice was a daughter of Henry III and Eleanor of Provence, who was born in 1242. Queen Victoria is famous for saying that while she was not fond of all children, quote, I admire pretty ones immensely, and thus Beatrice must have been utterly beloved by her mother, because she was, by all accounts, a beautiful baby. The Queen described her as, quote, a darling little baby, with a skin like satin, great blue eyes, the tiniest little mouth you can imagine, and besides, she is so lively and good-tempered. Vicky agreed, saying that she was, quote, quite the prettiest of us all. She is like a little fairy. Indeed, had she been born today and not to a royal, I can imagine her being some sort of baby model, advertising nappies or something. People walking by her seemed to just be urged to take her likeness, either by paint or, in the case of Mary Thorningcraft, in sculpture. She sounds utterly adorable. Her brother, Leopold, wrote of her when she was 15 months old, quote, Baby makes such a noise, and when I am sitting opposite to Baby on the left side of the carriage, she kicks me, and then she goes on saying, oogly oogly. Now, as we all know, Beatrice's first few years of life saw enormous change within her family. Her eldest sister got married and left for Prussia. Her grandmother died, her next eldest sister got engaged, and then finally, her father died, causing her mother to fall into an utter pit of despair, depression and self-pity. We've covered all of this in detail before, so there's no need to do so again, but these events would go on to have a huge impact on her life, as they would for all her siblings. The Queen struggled to be in the presence of any of her children after Albert's death, save of course Alice, and it was to Beatrice that some of her oddest behaviour was directed. Famously, the story goes that, after Albert had died, she rushed to Beatrice's room, wrapped her in one of his shirts, and then took her into her bed for the night. Now, we're not sure if this story is true, but we do know that she was one to kiss Albert's clothes after his death, and frequently had Beatrice lie in bed with her, so it's not exactly implausible. 
Victoria saw Beatrice as one of her very few shining lights at this time, calling her, quote, the brightest spot in this dead home. As the youngest of the troop, Beatrice would have had few, if any, memories of her father, and so only really knew him through her mother's stories. She was a willing and engaged recipient of these frequent eulogies, and, thanks to her good looks and cute mannerisms, was able to direct the Queen from her grief in a way that no one else could. I've previously described Vicky and Alice's childhoods as being idyllic, surrounded by love, encouragement and intellectual stimulation. This was, for the most part, down to the influence of their father. The difference between these halcyon days and the atmosphere around Beatrice's childhood was stark, and noticed by many, including William Letch, the children's art teacher. He wrote that, on his visit to Balmoral after Albert's death, quote, Everything was still and quiet. How different from my first visit here. The joyous bustle in the morning when the prince went out, the highland ponies and dogs, the gillies and the pipers. Then the coming home, the queen and her ladies going out to meet them, and the merry time afterwards, the torch-lit sword dances on the green, and the servants' ball closing the day. Now all was gone with him, who was the life and soul of it all. There were a few highlights of Beatrice's early life that weren't dominated by her mother's grief. In 1863, she was part of Alexandra of Denmark's bridal party when she married Bertie, the Prince of Wales, St George's Chapel, Windsor. The Queen, still dressed in mourning clothes, didn't much enjoy the proceedings, but took some pleasure in her youngest daughter. Quote, When the procession entered and our five fatherless children came into view, I felt terribly overcome. I couldn't take my eyes off precious little baby, with her golden hair and large nosegay, and smiled at her as she made a beautiful curtsy. For the record, because I had to look it up, a nosegay is a kind of small bouquet, and by all accounts it wasn't all that small, especially in the hands of six-year-old Beatrice. You may notice that there she refers to Beatrice as baby, despite the fact that she was well out of infancy. This was a nickname that stuck with her for much of her young life, and says something about how Victoria saw her. She was, of course, the baby of the family, only two years older than her nephew, the future Kaiser Wilhelm, but I think it was more than that. Beatrice was still a young infant when Albert had died, and Victoria still saw her as that, even as she grew up. There is another notable episode that emanated from Bertie's wedding to Alexandra. When the family wedding photo was taken, Beatrice was asked by the photographer, in an attempt, I imagine, to get her to sit still, if she was disappointed to have not been one of the bridesmaids. She replied very seriously, quote, Oh no, I don't like weddings at all. I shall never be married. I shall stay with mother. This attitude, that of sacrificing her own happiness to take care of her mother, would become the defining narrative of her life, and it is telling that she recognised this even now as a young girl. Given that her siblings' education had been dominated by their father's attention and beliefs, one might have expected Beatrice to have had a very different experience to the others. But this was not the case. She was subject to more or less the same curriculum as her other sisters, though with less of a focus on German history than Vicky and Alice, for understandable reasons. Yet though she was able to focus on her studies and worked hard, it was clear that she was being groomed for a very different future to her eldest sisters. From the start, 
It had always been the goal to marry Vicky and Alice to important foreign princes, in unions that would further Victoria and Albert's geopolitical goals. Much had been royal marriage policy for time immemorial. This may too have been the plans for Helena and Louise, the next eldest sisters, but Albert's death had gotten in the way. From the moment of Albert's death, it was clear that this was never going to be Beatrice's destiny. And it is rather tragic to see how Beatrice transitioned from being a happy, exuberant and precocious young girl to a very reserved teenager and woman. While still young, she confided to Augusta Bruce, one of Victoria's ladies, that, quote, I had such a funny thought today, but just for my own amusement. But it turned out to be an improper thought, so I wouldn't let it think. Bruce remarked on this conversation later, writing, quote, No doubt the poor girl was going to play or some such diversion which didn't suit a house in mourning. This was the kind of atmosphere in the household in which she grew up. It was a place where mourning was the order of the day, and the kind of exuberance associated with childhood was regarded as inappropriate. Historians have cast Beatrice and her two immediately elder siblings as orphans in this period, deprived of their father by death and their mother by grief. But, in fact, Beatrice got off a little more lightly than the Louise and Leopold, as she had always been her mother's favourite, and she wasn't very good at disguising it. Beatrice was always regarded with very maternal feelings by Vicky, Alice and Helena as well, and so it would be wrong to call her childhood as being a deeply unhappy one. After Alice left for Hesse, Helena was forced to take up the mantle of her mother's secretary and effective carer, and Beatrice quickly slotted alongside her as her assistant. She didn't so much have duties as the requirement to be more or less always present by Victoria's side, and possess certain personality traits. Quiet, considerate, and devoted. These were not present from the start. As I said, she was naturally curious and precocious as a child, but she was also intelligent enough to realise that that was not what her mother wanted, and obedient enough to go along with her wishes. Victoria's legendary grief following the death of Albert fell into a few obvious stages, and right now, in the early 1860s, we are still in the first, most powerful stage. The court was still in full mourning, no one was allowed to be especially happy, the Queen was completely withdrawn from public gaze. But in the mid-1860s, things started to relax at least a little. Her more junior ladies were able to deviate from wearing black, and her children were permitted to put on plays and receive entertainers. Beatrice was able to have the kind of joyful birthdays that her siblings had had before Albert's death, and rejoice in taking part in family plays. Parties were even thrown, and Beatrice was able to engage in her love of dancing and music. She had a natural aptitude for the piano, harmonium and organ, and it seems that, had she been born into a different family, she could have been a professional. This love of music was shared by the Queen, and it was something that they would always bond over. They also both loved animals. Victoria kept a variety of collies and Dutsons over the course of her life, while Beatrice, though she also had dogs, was more of a cat person. In a rather tragic story, while she was a child, one of her kitties was actually shot by one of the palace gamekeepers. She also loved riding, starting off with a Shetland pony called Tommy, and then transitioning to a horse named Beatrice, which must have been confusing. Beatrice's childhood, such as it was, 
came to an end at the age of 14, when the last of her sisters got married and flew the coop. Helena had married Christian of Schleswig-Holstein in 1866, and Louise married John Campbell, Duke of Argyll, in 1871. Neither of them went far. Indeed, both of these marriages were only approved because the husbands agreed to live nearby. But their new and quickly expanding families meant that they were no longer able to attend the Queen in quite the symbiotic way they had been forced to previously. That was now Beatrice's job. The Queen rather selfishly stated that Beatrice was, quote, the only one who needs me now. Quite frankly, it was the other way around. For royal women throughout history, marriage had meant a kind of imprisonment, or at the very least, a loss of independence. They were now subject to their husband, where before their responsibilities were few. This was very much not the case for the younger daughters of Victoria. For them, marriage meant nothing less than freedom. Victoria knew all too well that Beatrice was all she had left, and was determined to ensure that she never married. That she was always subject to her, and not some dude. And she was very serious about this. As I've mentioned before, the whole family was a big fan of Tennyson. Well, along with poetry, he was also a playwright, and wrote a play in 1875 about Mary I. You may remember her story from a supplemental episode I did on the Queens of England podcast. Well, in Act 2 of the play, there is a big scene where she confronts the fallout of the Wyatt Rebellion that was, in large part, due to her proposed marriage to Philip of Spain. She makes a big speech, in the middle of which comes these lines. Quote, As to myself, I am not so set on wedlock as to choose but where I list, nor yet so amorous that I must needs be husbanded. I thank God I have lived a virgin, and I no way doubt but that with God's grace I can live so still. Yet if it might please God that I should leave some fruit of mine own body after me to be your king, ye would rejoice thereat, and it would be your comfort, as I trust. Victoria was said to have greatly enjoyed the play, except for, quote, the coarseness which ought to have been omitted. When it came to giving Beatrice a copy, Victoria ensured that that bit was cut from it, for fear that Beatrice may be corrupted by this promotion of marriage. Talk about paranoid. As I said, Beatrice took over as her mother's secretary and constant companion in 1871, and this was a terrible year to have to take on that burden. The difficulty started in the summer, when first of all Prime Minister William Gladstone and all the Cabinet demanded that Victoria end her isolation and return to public life. When she refused them, her children got together, led by Vicky, and wrote a letter pleading with her to return. Quote, We have each of us individually wished to say this to you, but we have refrained for fear of offending. Had not the conviction come upon us all with such alarming force that some danger is in the air that something must be done to avert a frightful calamity. This fear, this spectre, was one of republicanism and the overthrow of the monarchy, and it was a very real threat at that time. The people, understandably, were struggling to see the point of a monarch that they could not see or hear from. However, there was one child conspicuously absent from the list of signees to that letter, and that was Beatrice. We don't know if Vicky deliberately didn't ask her for fear of putting her in an impossible position, 
or if she didn't ask her because she knew Beatrice would refuse, or indeed if she did ask and Beatrice refused. All we know is that she didn't sign. Shortly after this, Victoria fell ill with first a throat infection, and then an abscess on her arm, and then a severe attack of gout combined with toid arthritis. It wasn't much fun for her, but it wasn't much better for Beatrice, who had to take on even more responsibilities than usual. She had not only to write Victoria's letters for her, but also her journals, and when things got particularly bad, she had to read for her as well. This is a typical journal entry from Victoria in this period. Quote, A most dreadful night of agonising pain. No sedative did any good. My utter helplessness is a bitter trial, not even being able to feed myself. Dictated my journal to Beatrice, which I have done most days lately. Wasn't able all day, hardly, to eat anything. Beatrice got some relief, though, when Alice visited Balmoral with all her children. She, of course, was well used to dealing with her mother at her worst, and took over from Beatrice, allowing her to spend some time with her nieces and nephews. As the youngest child, and with the next eldest being Leopold, who suffered from haemophilia, and thus was very much restricted in what he was able to do, Beatrice didn't really have all that many people that were around her age to hang out with. She always then relished when her eldest nieces and nephews visited, as she was closer in age to them than many of her siblings. Victoria began to recover by November of that year, but very soon after that, Bertie fell very seriously ill with typhoid fever. It was so serious that the whole royal family was summoned, and, lest you forget, there were a lot of them. But while protocol insisted that this happened, this didn't mean that Victoria wants to be around all these people. Indeed, she insisted on dining with just Beatrice and Leopold, a catering arrangement I'm sure that was hotly resented by her staff. Everyone was quite sure that Bertie would die, but like the Queen, he recovered. The nation was so delighted that the heir to the throne had survived that they threw him a public service of thanksgiving. The service, and all the pageantry surrounding it, caused a great surge of popularity for the royal family, stifling any nascent thought of republicanism. Glued to Victoria's side the whole time was Beatrice. The whole event was topped off by the required balcony scene at Buckingham Palace. Present were Victoria, Alfred, Arthur, Leopold and Beatrice. Or, as Victoria put it in her journal, quote, Beatrice and my three sons. There really was no question about who her favourite was, and the crowds of people lining the streets were left in no doubt of this either. Beatrice was the last daughter she had left, and this image of her as the devoted daughter standing by her mother's side would endure for the rest of the Queen's life. She always saw Beatrice as her child, as her unblemished innocent flower that could not be spoiled or taken away from her. Beatrice's French governess was fond of comparing her to a lily, which in France is considered to be the symbol of the Virgin Mary. She remarked, quote, She did look so much like a lily, so very young, so gentle and good. The Queen can only pray that this flower of the flock, which she really is, for the Queen may truly say that she has never given the Queen one moment of displeasure, may never leave her, but be the prop, comfort, and companion of her widowed mother 
to her old age. Here ends part one. We'll be back after this. Beatrice wasn't alone in her companionship of the Queen, as there was also John Brown. Now, I talked a bit about him in episode 2.10, but to remind you, she was Victoria's gilly, a worker in the grounds of Balmoral, but he quickly worked his way into being her favourite servant. He was brash, abrasive, and thoroughly uncultured, but for whatever reason, this rather appealed to Victoria. He became omnipresent in her life, doing not only various menial tasks, but also offering emotional support at a time when she was still grieving for her husband. Quote, His only object and interest is my service, she once wrote, and God knows how much I want to be taken care of. It's lines like that that got people's backs up. It was one thing for Victoria to promote such a low-born provincial to such an important position. That could be tolerated given the circumstances. But not his haughty ways. His presumption to order them, well-bred important people, about. And especially not for him and Victoria to act in a way that got tongues wagging. Things got so bad that people started to refer to her as Mrs. Brown. The whole royal family hated him, despising the way that he was embarrassing them, their mother, and endangering the monarchy by bringing all their reputations into disrepute. Everyone, that is, except Beatrice. This was for a couple of reasons. The first is that Beatrice was intensely loyal to her mother. It just wasn't in her nature to go against her wishes. But secondly... It's clear that John Brown was incredibly useful to her. He took on much of the burden that would have otherwise been on her shoulders. He took care of Victoria while she was too young to be able to do so effectively. In the greatest throes of her grief, he was there, along with Beatrice. Indeed, it is likely that she didn't truly appreciate his worth until after he was gone. He died in 1883 of erysipelas, and this immediately threw Victoria into a state of melancholy that she had not felt since her husband's death. She wrote to Tennyson that, quote, Brown was part of my life, and quite invaluable. I have a dear, devoted child who has always been a dear, unselfish companion to me. But she is young, and I cannot darken her young life by my trials and sorrows. My other children, though all loving, have all their own interests and homes. It's clear from this quote that Victoria rather resented the fact that all her other children had rather abandoned her and was still opposed to the notion of Beatrice ever leaving her side. That said, she wasn't entirely against her marrying. But there would have to be strict rules, even stricter ones than Helena and Louise were forced to endure. Any husband of Beatrice would have to recognise his position in the order of things. He, maybe her husband that Victoria would always take precedence. This all meant that marriage speculation for Beatrice was pretty sparse as she entered her first years of womanhood, but it was there all the same. And there was actually a consensus candidate, and his identity may surprise you. In 1871, after being deposed by his people after the catastrophic defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, 
Emperor Napoleon III, his wife Eugenie, and teenage son Louis went into exile in England. They made their home in Kent, and were present in the crowds watching Bertie's procession to his service of thanksgiving in 1872. Victoria and Eugenie were good friends, as were Bertie and Napoleon, and so the family spent a lot of time together. The Queen didn't initially see much in Louis, calling him, quote, "...stumpy, a very nice child, but excessively short." shorter than Beatrice, who was a year younger than him. But after a while, Louis began to impress Victoria, who allowed him to enter officers' training at the Royal Military Academy and join the British Army soon after. At a military review in Bushy Park, she spoke with him at length, and afterwards he engaged Beatrice in long conversation. That put the public on notice that maybe a marriage was in the offering. Such rumours only intensified after the former emperor died in 1873, and the Queen took an even greater interest in Eugenie and Louis. They were regular fixtures at dinner, and Victoria frequently praised Louis in her diaries. In one entry in 1876, she called him, quote, very pleasing with remarkably good manners. Now, annoyingly, we don't know what Beatrice thought of Louis, but it would be surprising if she wasn't at least a little taken with him. He possessed tremendous charm, a certain dashing, daring do, and a self-confidence that meant he found it easy to be in the company of Queen Victoria. He was also the first young man not related to her that she'd ever spent any time with. But a proposal never came about, and if there ever were thoughts of marrying the pair, everyone waited too long. In 1879, war broke out between the British and Zulu empires in South Africa, Louis pleaded with his mother and the Queen to let him join the fight, to prove himself on the battlefield, and against the wishes of Prime Minister Israeli, their lobbying won Louis a place among the reinforcements sent to Natal. On the 1st of June, his scouting party was ambushed by a company of Zulus, and he was killed in action. When she heard the news, Beatrice was distraught. Victoria wrote, quote, Dear Beatrice, crying very much, as I did too, gave me the telegram. Beatrice is so distressed, everyone quite stunned. There has been much debate amongst historians as to whether Louis and Beatrice would have ever been married. It certainly would have made a lot of sense for Louis and Eugenie to make such an advantageous match, as it would have preserved his royal status and kept his prestige nice and high in case the political situation in France changed and he was able to make a grand return. There is speculation, unconfirmed, that Beatrice kept a photo of Louis on her desk for the rest of her life, and it was thought for many years that she always kept a secret flame for him. It wasn't to be, but perhaps this first love awakened something in Beatrice, a doorway into a life previously barred to her. Perhaps she didn't have to be just a mother's secretary and nothing else for the rest of her life. Perhaps she could have a life of her own. We talked about another candidate for her hand in the last episode, that of Alice's widower, Grand Duke Louis of Hesse. He visited with the children, the elders of which weren't far off her age, in January 1879. She wrote of it, quote, I cannot tell you how sad the meeting yesterday with Louis and the children was. For the first time to miss darling Alice, and to see him alone, it all brought our terrible loss so vividly before us. There didn't seem to be much in the way of a spark between them, but Bertie got it in his head that this match would be a good idea. 
He won over Victoria by saying that they could split their time between Darmstadt and the UK, and thus she would be able to have a strong hand in raising the grandchildren. In this way, Victoria wouldn't be losing a daughter, she'd be gaining a young family. No one really seems to have asked Beatrice, but she certainly wasn't opposed to the idea, and nor was Louis. But there was one significant obstacle, and that was English law. The marrying of a man to his widow's sister had always been frowned upon, and had been enshrined in law in the Marriage Act 1835. One would have thought this was a fairly niche legal position, but it seems to have been a really contentious issue in the mid to late 19th century. It even made it into a Gilbert and Sullivan opera. The Queen and Prince of Wales threw their weight behind the pithily named Deceased Wife's Sister Bill that would have made the match possible, and with Prime Minister Disraeli's support, it passed the House of Commons, but it floundered in the Lords. The problem was that the bill was opposed by the Church, and, as you may know, Church of England bishops sat, and still do in fact sit, in the House of Lords. I've read the debate that took place in the Lords that day, and my oh my is it pompous and long-winded. Not that, you know, that's surprising for the House of Lords, but the long and short of it was that the bill was rejected. It would eventually be passed, but not until 1907, at which point everyone, bar Bertie and Beatrice, was dead. Well, that took a turn. Let's talk about something happier. I didn't know this before I started work on this episode, but Princess Beatrice actually wrote a book. Kinda. It was a birthday book, with one page for every day of the year. Every month had a fancy cover page with poems from the likes of Wordsworth and Milton on it. She did the decorations herself, including beautiful watercolour borders adorned with flowers. It was big and expensive, and it was very popular. She didn't benefit from it financially, of course. All proceeds went to Belgrave Children's Hospital. As she entered her twenties, Beatrice began to get a taste of what a life unshackled from her mother's side would be. This came from actually a rather sad place. She began to suffer from rheumatism, a painful condition affecting the joints that was exacerbated from hanging out in cold, windy places like, for instance, Balmoral. To alleviate her suffering, she took many trips to spas on the continent. The first of these trips was to Aix-les-Bains in the south of France in 1883, shortly after John Brown's death. Victoria made an attempt to show empathy to her daughter's suffering, that she was in one of her woe-is-me moods, and so made it all rather about herself, writing to Augusta of Prussia, quote, Beatrice's absence is very grievous and unpleasant, and increases my depression and the horrible ever-growing feeling of emptiness and bereavement which nothing can ever really remove. But recently she had been suffering a great deal, especially to her hand and right arm, which was a great inconvenience to her in writing, and especially in playing the piano. So we thought it would be advisable to try a thorough cure for three weeks. To Vicky, she wrote, quote, Her absence is, of course, a great trial to me, as for 22 years she has only been absent for 10 days once. While in France, Beatrice was the master of her own time, and spent it profitably, getting herself better, yes, but also enjoying what the Mediterranean coast had to offer. It was only a short trip, but as I said, it gave her a taste of the kind of freedom that she could have if she married. 
She was destined to be her mother's companion. That she knew. But it didn't have to be as it had always been. And she was getting a little taste of this limited emancipation. And she didn't have that much longer to wait for more. But that is not the case for the rest of you, as I'm going to tantalisingly end the show here. You'll have to wait till next time to hear about the man who would win Beatrice's hand in marriage. But before we go, I have a little bit of homework for you all. I said that I was going to try some new things in the State of the Podcast address, and this is the first one. The next episode will be the last one on Princess Beatrice. And after that, instead of diving straight into the next royal princess, I thought it would be fun to have a podcast movie night. Podcast and chill, but easy on the chill. Of course, the film choice has to be related to the subject matter of the series. Unfortunately, there aren't any films that I can find of Princess Beatrice, so instead I have chosen the 1997 film Mrs. Brown. This film explores the controversial relationship that Queen Victoria had with John Brown, one that I've now covered twice on the podcast. Now, I'll level with you, I haven't yet seen it, but it's supposed to be very good. It earned Dame Judi Dench an Oscar nomination, and has a very young Jared Butler in it. So, what's not to love? You have now four weeks' notice to buy, rent, or, I guess, steal the film – Watch it and come prepared for the episodes with lots of hot and frothy opinions. I'll remind you all at the end of the next episode too, but I thought I'd give you plenty of warning. Okay, that's it. Bye! (laughs) 